Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Um, so you have expressed to me many times uh, extensive frustration about um, various journalists asking you, you know, how do you think you became so successful right. or something <laughs> like that? Can you just talk about why that's frustrating to you? I never felt successful. I felt gloomy. Because <laughs> you know I mean? successful, the implication is like weird. Um, about what it means to be a successful composer. You know, because one thing that that's always baffled me about composers is if you say, I got this commission, people are like, oh, congratulations. Right? I'm like, I don't know if it's congratulations because a commission is scary. A commission is like a challenge. It's sort of like, here's this big mountain you have to climb. You say congratulations, you get to the other side. You know what I mean? But then the, the measure of success isn't just that you wrote the thing. It's that the thing is okay. It's that people want to listen to the thing on purpose. For me, it's also the question of, like, does it have legs? Does it exist past this kind of closed economy of commission, first performance? Okay, bye. Right, so there's that. And then I think also the, the reason I bristle sometimes when people say, like, you know, how, how did you get so successful? Is it that it implies that there's some... The, other thing that I'm doing besides just writing music. I don't think that there is. Like, I think I'm basically, you know, I was writing music until I came here and I'm going to run back up and write more music the minute it's over. I mean, you know, I've, there's a, you know, there's basically music on the stove upstairs right now. So, you know, the implicit, you know, undertone of a question like that is that there's some secret to it. The way that I've learned to answer this Write for people you know. If you write for people you know, it'll have legs because they'll know you and they'll play it like more than one time, basically. So, you know, you write for people you know and then you get good at writing that and then people you don't know will hear that and then ask you to write things for them and then you know them and then you do it again. <laughs> Nico Muley may well be the most successful composer of his generation. At age 34, he's released a half a dozen CDs written for major orchestras around the world composed choral and sacred music for the world's top choirs, collaborated with pop musicians from Diplo to Bjork to Grizzly Bear, written the scores for several films, including The Reader and Joshua. And he's not only the youngest ever composer to be commissioned by the Metropolitan Opera, he's been commissioned a second time to adapt Winston Graham's 1961 novel, Marnie, the one that was made into a Hitchcock film, for the Met's 2019-2020 season. So, you know, journalists can be forgiven for asking him to pontificate on his success. For Nico, though, these types of questions almost feel like accusations. To ask him, he's asked to write so much stuff because, for a very long time, Nico just wrote for his friends. Nico is a fiercely loyal communicator, a connector, someone who builds and feeds community all over the world. For years, he'd write stuff for free whenever anyone asked for it. college where I met him, it was well known that if your recital program was coming up short, this kid Nico would totally write you a piece to hit your desired runtime. Nico is the hardest working person I've ever met, a furious producer. And in writing for and working with his colleagues, he has built a generation of fierce Nico loyalists. 
musicians who lie in traffic for him. I'm definitely one of them, by the way. It's Nadia Sirota. Um, And I want to kind of get something off my chest straight off the bat here. Today's composer, Nico Muley, he's one of my best friends. We met in college around 2003, and we've been collaborating, making music together ever since. Nico is one of my favorite people writing music these days. And so, yeah, it's, it's natural to want to have him on the show. But I really feel compelled to disclose the fact that we're just very close, aside from professional collaborative people. So putting the show together feels a little weird. Honestly, it feels like some combination of writing a term paper on your favorite 19th century painter and assembling a short documentary film about your house cat. So I'm going to do my best to stay professional and all that, but know that I'm just completely in the tank for Nico. Okay. By the time I met Nico at Juilliard, he was already kind of a mythical figure, a Columbia Juilliard double-degree student studying English and composition and Arabic, who worked for Philip Glass afternoons and weekends, wore a colorful assortment of gardening clogs, and had an affinity for dim sum. How he got to that point, Nico's upbringing, was similarly unconventional. Travel has always been a really important part of who I am and, and, and kind of how I think about where I live. And I think because I traveled a lot as a kid, you know, my, my father was always kind of going off into interesting places, including sort of Egypt. And, Nico's and, dad, Frank Muley, makes documentary films. Et cetera, and my mother has a long relationship with, with Rome. Nico's mom, Bunny Harvey, is a painter. Having been a fellow at the American Academy in the 70s and then returning at various intervals for the rest of her life, And so she and I lived there for a year when I was 13, which is exactly the time in one's life when that's something sort of seismic. Again, when you're 13, it's awkward enough being in school anywhere, but then going into a place where you don't speak the language, it sort of, it radically reconfigures how your brain functions. Language is a big deal for Nico. A lot of his humor stems from playing with diacritical marks and usage and weird conjugations. He can speak a fistful of languages, including Icelandic and Arabic. But while he grew up with some French inherited from some grandparents, he wasn't really raised bilingual. Going to school in Italy was the first time he really had to communicate in a language other than English. I learned Italian real quick because there was no other option. I was in state school and the sense of it was trying to function in English was pure misery. Whereas, you know, learning Italian and getting better every day started to become a sort of ecstatic joy um, after the, the misery of the first two weeks, at which point I was essentially, you know, you know, kicking and screaming, begging to begging to be taken home to Providence. Nico was born in Vermont, but did the bulk of his growing up in Rhode Island. Providence is an amazing place, actually. I mean, it's, it's a place that when I was there in, in high school, it was sort of maybe not quite as fun as it is now, and it felt a little bit less kind of connected to the rest of the world. Um, but, it, you know, now I, I sort of look on it fondly. Um, yeah, it, my, my high school years were strange. I mean, it was, it was, it was really it, – it felt, it felt kind of joyful in a way, and I had a lot of great friends, and I really liked my school, but it also felt in a sense like a holding pattern to get out. Um, but I think that's probably true of most people in most places and most configurations. <laughs> 
Music has been central to me, I think, probably since I was about 10 or 11. And I was in fifth grade, and um, I started singing in a boys' choir in downtown Providence, which is, at that time was, was a really depressed kind of, you know, northeast city that once had been in some way grand and then for a variety of reasons became less grand. Now, I should, I should say, it's, you know, they've cleaned up the river and now it's kind of undergone the renaissance, as it's affectionately known. But in 1991, I guess it must have been, um, it felt really kind of wild. And there was this Anglican church in the middle of town called Grace Church. And, you know, it was in the middle of downtown where no one really lived. So it was a strange congregation. But for some miraculous reason, they had a budget for and, and the, I suppose, an, an practical insanity or impractical insanity to have this really divine choir master um, who was really steeped in the English tradition and figured out how to have a choir of men and boys do two services a week. And it was a really, it was a really spectacular thing. So what kind of music did you perform in that context? So in, the, so in that context, we sang primarily, I would say, the music of the English Renaissance, but, you know, spanning out, so that includes Bird, and that includes Talis, and into sort of Purcell, and Ty, and Shepherd and, and, and even Mundi, and sort of even more esoteric things. And in addition to that, uh, the sort of meat and potatoes of the early 20th century English repertoire, so that's Howells and that's Finzi, you know, in that strange way that a lot of choral music kind of bypasses the classical and romantic era almost entirely. That sort of laid a groundwork in my head about how music sort of went. It was in that choir that I was first exposed to the Stravinsky Mass, which again is a wild thing to have happen to you when you're when you're 12 years old. I mean, the, the first time you hear that first four notes of the Stravinsky Mass, if you're 12 years old, it's like a really erotic experience. What was extreme about the fact that we were performing it is that this is a congregation with not that many people in it, you know, not necessarily the most musically sophisticated um, kind of landscape. And yet here we were doing Stravinsky and then we were doing Thai and we were doing Bird and it, it felt it felt kind of, um, you know, idiosyncratic and also magical. <laughs> P- wait, P.S. is not not the plot of Sister Act, right? The church with like the thriving music scene and not so many parishioners, but, you know, with like Motown or instead of Stravinsky? Um... <laughs> Uh, cool. Um, so when did sort of constructing your own ideas into something performable start in your life? Uh, in terms of running my own music, I mean, I think, you know, because I had because I had keyboard skills, um, my, my, my first what could casually be called compositions stemmed from, you know, kind of messing around, stemmed from sort of improvisational gestures aimed from um, a piece of music that I was playing that I didn't particularly like. I mean, I mean, for me, writing was always actually, early on, it was very much about notation. I would never just improvise and not write it down. It was like drawing the triangle between what you see, what you hear, and what you want was really important really early. And, and, and you know, you're sort of messing around and, and you realize that, that there's a life beyond the notes that are written that can be derived from it. I'm picturing that, like, uh, the scene from Amadeus when Salieri wrote Mozart, that little thing, and he just, like... And he just does that thing to it. I know, that's a, that's a sort of extraordinary moment in, in, like, all of our collective imaginations, isn't it? Where it's, like, that one thing becomes transformed Grazie, in a sort of magical way. And then he says, what does he say? And the rest is just the same, isn't it? The rest it? is just the same, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so good. That doesn't really work, does it? You try... This. Better? What do you think? <laughs> Grazie, signore. So did you always know that you wanted to be a professional musician, or was that something that came a little later? 
You know, the, the professional musician question, and and this was, this is always something that that sort of baffles me a little bit, is that I, I feel like I was born without the gene that tells me to have to know what I'm doing in a year or to know what I'm doing in five years, and and, and I feel like I'm I'm really like almost to a fault unable to think about the future. I, I wouldn't even know how to have that idea about what I wanted to do. And if I tried to sort of like image myself into the future, I couldn't do it. And and I think that's a it's a form of lack of depth perception that I've I've gotten used to about myself, but I think is interesting when I meet people who, who are sort of in a similar position to me, who have their whole life mapped out. They're like, I want to do this, I want to do this, and I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna do this. I think, whoa, I had nothing, nothing, nothing at all like that. I mean it was really it wasn't even it it, 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 it it still actually feels inconceivable to 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 scheme about your own life in that way to me. So I so the idea of like professional musician has always been really alien to me, and I, I guess that's technically what I am now. Like, and there's no denying that really, but it still feels it still feels strange that something that could have been planned for at the age of like 14. I think this is fair. Nico is someone who is kind of excessively in the moment, and when that moment was applying for colleges. He kind of applied to all kinds of college at the same time, eventually attending both Columbia and Juilliard from 1999 to 2004. Something borderline romantic about Nico's time in college is that he paid for it, or most of it, himself. So it became pretty clear the way to make it through school was to be very vigilant about making money by trying to sort of supplement schoolwork with sort of any other thing that I could do. You know, just to make a bit more money to, to like live in New York, and I, I realized quite quickly that that was something that was interesting to me on a practical level, and and also on a sort of emotional level. I, f- I felt like I wanted the flexibility of having a bit of cash. So, at that time, one of the sort of larger influences in my adulthood um, has been the illustrator Myra Kalman and her family. Myra Kalman is an author and an illustrator, and you might have seen her stuff in the New Yorker. She, among a lot of other things, is one of the people who was responsible for that New Yorkistan cover. I met Myra and her late husband Tibor and their children Lulu and Dibi when we all were living in Rome when I was when I was 13 years old and they were a year or two years younger than I am. Myra and, and Tibor lived in the village and when I moved to New York, I had been sort of coming down to visit them a, a bunch and then eventually... I, you know, I told Myra that I, I really needed some work and did she have anything? And M & Company, the design company that she and her husband sort of ran, was still extant and they needed someone to do a variety of, of sort of small jobs on a sort of hourly basis. And so my freshman year, I started this very long project working for Myra, archiving all of her photographs. She, she's an illustrator primarily and, and a children's book author and her art is derived not necessarily from life, but from photographs. So she'll take a photograph of a thing and then paint from the photograph. And her eye and her photographic eye is really specific and, and really weird. To look at the photograph is to see her obsession. So for instance, you'll have a, a photograph of, of a seemingly kind of ugly courtyard in Cuba. And you realize that the reason she's taking the photograph is because she's obsessed by buckets. <laughs> specifically, you know, red ones. And and then you'll realize that every sort of couple of weeks in her photo archive, there'll be a bucket somewhere, and that that's the, that's the path through. When she asks about it, when she says, where's that picture of that bucket, you need to be able to cross-reference it with where's that bucket, where's the courtyard, in what context were they there. And so, I, and this is, again, before iPhoto, you know, before even the word of, like, a, a sort of 
easy way to cross-reference things. Like before tags? Before or tags, yeah. I mean, was, I mean, maybe people people had it, but I didn't know how to do it. So I was doing this all manually, and there was this crazy Excel thing that I spent hours going through. It was, you know, And I felt it actually was incredibly useful for me as a, as a musician because it was the same kind of way that I navigate the world, which is these little obsessive things that aren't necessarily related, that you force a relationship through you know, through time, essentially. So you say this bucket in Naples relates to this bucket in Marrakesh, which relates to this bucket in Florida. Buckets. For small ensemble. <laughs> sort of... From Mother Oceania, you're and then actually through Myra, strangely, um, I met this very nice man called Jim who said, oh, you know, I'm Philip Glass's publisher. And if you're looking for other work, you know, we have these internships at the recording studio. Um, you should come in. And I did. Since he didn't have a studio, I think he was hanging out in the office outside. And I was terrible. I was a terrible, terrible intern because I was so distracted by what was going on. I think it was in 2004. That's Icelandic composer and producer Valgir Sigurdsson. I was at the studio with Björk. Working on uh, Medulla album. He and Nico started a record label together in 2006 called Bedroom Community. But when they met, Valgir was working with Bjork on Medulla, this bonkers kind of a cappella record with completely crazy sampling and production. I see the islands you count centuries I blink There was a situation in her studio which caused us to look for another room for a week and started working in the small room at the Looking Glass, which I later found out was um, Nico's workroom. So I kind of kicked, kicked him out of his room, more or less, and, and we started talking in the, in the hallways. Bjork was finishing up her album Medulla, and she called people in New York to say, you know, is there anyone you know who knows who could, like, really quickly come and, like, realize this crazy piano thing that she had done? Based on an idea of Richard Kleiderman and Liberace being in a piano battle. And somehow she got my number and rang me up. It was suggested by Alex Ross that we speak to Nico. And I was like, obviously, obviously I'll do whatever you say. So I didn't make the connection right away that it was the same Nico who I sort of kicked out of his studio. And it was through her that I met some of my now kind of closest collaborators. We just started exchanging emails quite frequently around the same time and like sending each other music and, and ideas. And he started sending me his own music, which I really liked. And I sent him what then was the norm, which was a piece of music that I had written that was played at a Juilliard composer's concert. And I had been handed at the end of that a cassette tape with that music on it, which I had then somehow thought to digitize and turn into a CD, which I then sent to him. Really, really bad recordings. And he called me back and was like, what is this? What's going, like, literally what's going, like, what, why does this sound like this? Those pieces really deserve to be recorded properly. And I was like, well, because it's the cassette that they handed from the composition department. You know, it was really, I was, you know, and I thought, what's wrong with it? You um, know, it's like, that's how it goes. They were just documents. They were just... Uh, a microphone on the floor, on the, on the ceiling, so they were not really in any way proper acoustics or, like, they always felt really far away and they always, like, seemed that you really had to kind of listen for what was going on rather than it sort of being presented in the recording. He was like, check it out. What you should do is get on a plane, come up in here and record this properly. I was like, 
Okay. So I offered my help. <laughs> so, so I got in a plane, and and then out of that stemmed this idea that you can make music in the studio and you can write music that that it works for the stage, but that can be recorded in the studio or built in the studio, and that the studio itself becomes a, a form of I don't want to say instrument because that's that sort of cliche, but it becomes a, a, a special kind of cauldron in which you can sort of do things that you that you're not necessarily able to do with like two saucepans and a butter knife. And also I think me coming more from the production of, you know, not the purely classical way of recording, which is more about capturing a room sound with one or two mics. And I wanted to uh, take it a little bit further and, and kind of produce it as I would do any like pop or rock music to take every instrument and, and bring it really close and, you know, put it in the right space and allow the recording to be a creative process as well as um, the writing of the piece. This is Nico Muley's piece, Mother Tongue. If you've heard the show before, you might recognize this as the music we use in our logo. Probably the most common question I get about the show on Twitter or whatever is, what is that logo piece? Well, it's by Nico, and it's one of my favorite collaborations of his and Valgear's from those early days at Valgear Studio in Iceland. Incidentally, if you ever want to know what a piece is that you've heard in passing on the show, we post a playlist page for every episode that has all the music laid out with time codes and stuff. And most questions will find answers over there. So that's at q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. When we come back, Nico writes an opera. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Phil Klein, a host at Q2 Music, your home for dynamic, thrilling new music. On Q2, we play the music of composers you hear on Meet the Composer, and many more, redefining the world of music today. You can hear me hosting weekdays from 11 a.m. until 1 p.m. or tune in 24-7 for a continuous stream of discovery and surprise at q2music.org. Indulge your curiosity. Composition is a solitary art. Ask any writer, really, and they'll tell you that the creative process requires large swaths of time in isolation. In order to really hear the ideas as they crystallize in your head, you need a quiet space, a solitude. Nico Muley is a rabid communicator. He is very much in touch, texting and emailing many dozens of people a day, and this would seem incongruous with the lifestyle of a composer. How could these two behavior patterns possibly exist in tandem? I think, for Nico, he supplements the truly solitary parts of his work with a massive number of collaborations. Nico is a virtuosic collaborator. He's able to curate environments wherein every contributor feels invaluable, pushed, creative. He's incredible at drawing the best out of people, hearing them and then adding a musical element that's just unexpected enough to create something that couldn't have been imagined by either party. 
Nico has worked with film directors, librettists, clarinet players, choreographers, as well as having written arrangements for an impressive roster of bands and songwriters. My friend Rob Moose once likened writing arrangements, strings for a rock song, for example, to doing wine pairings. It's a very specific and subtle type of magic. You know, an arrangement is a funny thing. Like, like no one's quite sure what it means. It's rather like, you know, producing. It's Everyone's like, what, what, exact, what exactly is that? And an arrangement can be something so simple. An arrangement can be something like, you know, taking someone singing a folk song and playing like four notes over it. You know what I mean? On the piano, just like the, the most nothing, nothing, nothing. And sometimes an arrangement can be doing nothing. That's it. You just say, you're done. <laughs> That's it. There's no arrangement. Um, I mean, you know, usually it's not quite that simple, but sometimes it's like the littlest thing. And then other times an arrangement is, is you know, I, I feel like the, the, the prime example is someone like Van Dyke Parks, where it's like, it, it's the opposite of nothing. It's literally everything. Like, it's all there. Um, and... You know, that, that process has been something really fascinating for me to, to, to learn. And in a lot of cases, what you're doing is you're submitting your skills as a musician and as, as someone who's trained and as someone who's, who knows the way in and out of kind of you know, traditionally notated traditional instruments as a kind of final process in what's been a long, maybe not notated sequence of work. So why, why do you have to notate it? You don't necessarily have to notate it, but I, but I always feel like an arrangement stems out of a tradition of a bunch of people doing the same thing, like a section of strings, or it stems out of a tradition of... It stems out of a tradition of, of something distinct from the actual the song itself. And I think when I say stems from it, I, it doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't songs whose arrangements are key to them. I think you, you find that a lot where the arrangement has a line that you think is part of the song. Um, and I think you, you find this a lot even in, in sort of Sinatra, where it's like the, the thing that the horns do is, is part of the composition. Or like, sweet Caroline. Bop, bop, bop. Yeah, exactly. Right. No, exactly. That's, that's a perfect example, right? Where it's like, you know, that's probably an arrangement, but that's also not. You know, it's, it's, it's part of the DNA of the piece. But that's, that's the weird, that's the gray area of, of, being, of being an arranger. And, and that's, the, that's the gray area of, of being a collaborator ever. You know, who did what is, is unclear, and that's great, I think. Are you a Thank you. 
How does that process compare to, say, the process of constructing a ballet, like how you did with uh, Benjamin? So I, I've worked with the, with the choreographer Benjamin Milopier for years, and we've made maybe seven or eight ballets together um, in varying sizes. Working with dance is really fascinating to me because, in, in a sense, it's, it's the ultimate kind of classical collaboration, right? And there's, there's such a long history of composers and choreographers working together. You know, Benjamin and I have, have enjoyed not just a long relationship, but I would, I would say a very easy one in which I think we understand each other very well and can do a lot of work without saying much, um, one of the things that's difficult about working working with dance is that you have to understand when you're writing it that not just the choreographer, but then a, a group of dancers ranging from two people to 25 people are going to need to internalize your music into their actual bodies in a way that, that far surpasses instrumentalists. And this is not in any way to belittle what instrumentalists do, but it's it's just a whole different it's a whole different process. And it's like it's you know we love to say as as instrumentalists, oh, I have it in muscle memory, which in a sense is true, but it's also a, it's also a very miniaturized version of your whole body and like this toe and that finger and this you know pelvis and that thing and this piece of your hair and you know it's like I mean th- that that extent of full body kind of musical knowledge is I think unique to dance well I'm always obsessed with the fact that dancers are constantly working from memory like I have a score yeah. and I can check it out as many times or as few times as I want and even in the concert I can <laughs> check out a score um, whereas if somebody's choreographing something on you, you have to immediately memorize it, which is is. Uh, I, mean, I mean, there are these systems of dance notation, but they're not. Watching a dance rehearsal, the first time, the first time I watched a dance rehearsal with Benjamin, it was at ABT at American Ballet Theater, and I saw him teaching them a phrase that they didn't know, and I realized they're just putting this together. I mean, they're, they, they, he teaches like four gestures, and then all of a sudden there's 20 women doing it. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen, and you think, well, you know. <laughs> it's it's you know I, I can barely memorize like a like the you know the first movement of the French suites of Bach you know it's and and it, it's an extraordinary thing to watch because it, it you really realize that they're they're taking the music and they're reacting to it and and putting it inside their bodies in some memory bank that is really other to, I think to the way that I think about how music goes. So the collaboration for me is one of, of, of you know, wonder and awe half of the time because I just think, how, you know, how are you doing this? Like, just on a technical level, how are you doing this? And then also, interestingly, you know, when you, when you watch dancers react to music, you realize that their itinerary through it is, is wholly other to the way that I listen to music. And that, how so? Well, they, they, react to, they react to different things. I mean, if, they, if you ask them kind of where do you think the climax of this thing is, they wouldn't necessarily say it the same place where I would. And I think it's a, it's a corporeal, almost sort of reptile brain reaction to the, to the music that, that um, you know, they're saying, okay, this is how I see this phrase. This is how I count this. So it's like 18 sixes, a 17, and a 3. And you think... Oh yeah, <laughs> and it, and and then you realize they're totally right. I mean, that's how they that's how they've internalized that, and then you realize that their their itinerary through a piece, it, you get to the same place, but it's it's a totally different way to think about it. Um, and it feels like the closest analogy is is you know the first time that you turn the map of the world upside down, and you're like, huh, that's what shape it is. I mean, it's amazing, right? When you you know because we're so used to kind of Florida sticking out in that direction, and then to see it. The other direction, even though it's the same shape, you think something's wrong here. You know what I mean? Or something's beautiful here. And that's that's always what I feel like when I go to a first rehearsal of dance. And, and you hear them shouting and counting and people are screaming in French and you're like, what's going on right now? <laughs> Please do your job then. 
In 2006, Nico, through a really funny series of events... I met him because he was helping Rufus Wainwright on a piece that uh, Rufus was developing for us, which ended up not being in our program. That's the Met's general manager, Peter Peter Gelb. Gelb. I'm the general manager of the Metropolitan Opera. Nico came to be commissioned by the Met to adapt a true crime story from the early days of the Internet into an opera. I was so struck by Nico's talent in, in helping Rufus that I ended up having a conversation a few weeks later with Nico in which he described his ideas for several different pieces one of which was the story of two boys. I remember when he found out that it would be premiered in the fall of 2013 and thinking that 2013 was an impossibly futuristic date. It was like he was being commissioned to write a piece for someone's wedding on Pluto in 2068. Working on an opera is one of the scariest things I've ever done. Um, it's, It's a big collaboration with a million people and it happens in incredible slow motion like glacially slow and and you think you know it feels like you're just climbing through molasses to make the simplest decisions and then the two weeks before you open it's like the craziest fastest most like coked out thing that's ever happened and everyone's screaming in French it's <laughs> like, basically I mean it is so wild it was Nico's story idea an early horror story of the internet in internet chat rooms where one boy is preying on another and, uh, and ultimately uh, uh, plans his own murder at the hands of the boy he's preying on because obviously he's a mentally uh, deranged child. And the story, which was so compelling and was you know, based on a true event that took place in England in the 90s, was the subject that Nico was pulled towards. I was struck by the music that he had composed up to that point, which I had gotten myself better versed with. I think his choral writing is uniquely beautiful and is what we're always looking for, I think, today in new composers of classical music. Compositional voices who are both original but are also accessible. Composers who are successful today, I think for the most part, are ones who are able to find this road between originality and accessibility. His beautiful um, choral music served very well, I mean, in in a kind of uh, interesting and perverse way, because the most beautiful music in Two Boys is the music of the chat rooms of the Internet, which are full of the most obscene and perverse language, sung beautifully, and woven together in these incredible kind of harmonies of, of different voices, so that the effect is one of great beauty, even though the audience may not be able to understand the individual words that are very um, perverse and obscene.
when we come back, emails, illness, and community. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Julian Fleischer, host of the Naked American Songbook, the show where we reveal who we are by sharing what we love, namely songs. You're a lover of great music. You're listening to Meet the Composer right now. I think you'll also enjoy the Naked American Songbook. Edie Falco, Rachel Dratch, Chris Noth, Martha Plimpton, Mo Rocca, Isaac Mizrahi, they all join me to share the songs they adore. Binge listen to the Naked American Songbook on iTunes or at nakedamericansongbook.org. Um, okay, so right now I'm looking up one of the many emails that has been sent to me by Nico Muley titled, You. There is not a day that goes past <laughs> when we don't get an email with the subject line, You, from Nico. And, <laughs> I don't know uh, how many thousands I have. <laughs> oh my God, You emails from Nico. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, in fact, let's see, did I get one I this morning? I collect them and I, I try to keep them in a folder for later. <laughs> I keep them all in a folder somewhere. It's basically like it's, uh, email Domino's with a pizza. photo of anything. Um, a dog. There was one of a woman with like else? totally naked playing the piano. <laughs> Penguin. Yeah, the postcard. I, I got one as well. And she had like a really interesting tattoo on her back, and it said "you." It just said "you" on the back. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very funny. They tend to be ice related or Viking themed. Or I remember Nico sent a "you" email to another friend of ours that was a burger. Or um, very rude. That he said that looked like his face. Like mean stuff about other people. <laughs> the, the whole spectrum. Today's definition of me is this old woman on a blue bed sheet surrounded by crucifixes. Lying in some like 1970s, you know, negligee. <laughs> that was me one time. I can look up, we can literally look up every time he's sent me something called you. I feel like you also send me like a lot of things about the trans community for some reason. Yeah, there's that. There's a lot of stuff about like, if you have a conversation with someone about like a topic or whatever, like it can be really anything, but it's like you just keep it kind of afloat. Like I have a friend who wears like really high-waisted tight jeans from the past, basically, these sort of vintage jeans. And so anytime I find like a collection of horrifying denim on the internet, I you that to her. And I feel like it's a way of being in touch without being in touch. Um, how many people do you think you you on a daily basis? <laughs> it's probably like 65. <laughs> it's probably about 65. And are you, you're in touch with a lot of people every day? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, being in touch with people is kind of my, I'm not even sure what the word is. It, it, it's, it's so much part of the engine of my day. And I think, I think part of that is because because my quote-unquote like world of ideas, it's easy when you're a composer to get really caught up in a private twin speak with yourself, right? And sometimes I really do feel like Nell, but with myself, where I'm saying things that only I can understand and that my, my processes are so circular and so self-referential that even though they're influenced by external things and that I have all these wonderful collaborators, it's easy to feel like, you know, I've just spent three hours thinking about something and it's actually been 10 seconds 
and it feels like the, the, the brain is in overdrive. And of course, you know, this is something that, that is partially, you know, really useful for me and also partially something that, you know, why I've been seeing Dr. Rosenfeld for nine years, you know, but it's, it's one of those things where you kind of have to, you have to figure out ways to sort of get out of circular thought. And what the danger would be is entering a kind of manic spiral. So for me, being in touch with a lot of people and just, and feeling like people are there, even if they're not physically in my dwelling place, which, you know, God forbid, is, is, is really, keeps me kind of healthy, I think. Part of my life, which has been true for about almost 10 years now, is a almost constant connection to England, to sort of a world there, which obviously kind of overlaps with my life here, but having so many friends in a different time zone kind of slightly adjusts your sense of yourself. Knowing that wherever you are in the world, you can probably call someone, even if you don't actually call them, but you can just like send a text or something just so it doesn't so it doesn't feel like you're like post-apocalyptically lonesome and the only thing you'll have to think about for the rest of your life is like some weird grammatical rule of old English. <laughs> do you think that um, given how much you travel, which is obviously like quite a bit, um, do you think that sort of the way we communicate now with, you know, the internet, basically, and, like, all of its various tendrils, like, makes that possible for you? Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I mean, for me, for me being, like, constantly online is something incredibly useful. Um, of course it makes it possible. Although I think, you know, I, I feel like one one of the things that I was very moved by when I when I was reading um, Benjamin Britten's letters is you realize he was writing a lot of letters, not a few letters. Like, he was writing, it was really a lot of letters a day. It was, it was maybe, like, 30 letters, you know, and letters, letters, like, many, many pages. And, you know, there, there are many examples of historical correspondents who, you know, who are only writing with, like, you know, pig's blood and a, and a you know, I don't know what people write, papyrus or something. Like, you know, and, and, I, and, and I feel like, you know, we're, we're lucky now to be able to do this kind of so quickly and easily and cheaply. But I feel like, you know, 200 years ago, I would have found a way too. <laughs> you know I would have. It's like my ass is like a telegraph machine. Like, yeah, exactly. Like Morse code. It's like... Like, yeah, it's like you'd be sitting at home, you'd be like... <laughs> it's like a, like a passenger pigeon. Like. <laughs> it would totally be a passenger pigeon. What are you most proud of? Um, I am, I have to say, I am most proud of my, like, big family and community. My my big community is like is a thing that makes me so happy. And I just got back from London, and it was one of these things where a whole bunch of us got together at a friend's house who's a priest on Ash Wednesday, and we all cooked dinner. And it's like new friends, old friends. And then the next night, a whole bunch of us had dinner, different people. And then we were all talking at the same time to a bunch of much younger people who were all in the same choir. And then we were all talking to older composers and younger composers. And it really felt like this kind of, you know, it's... It, it's one of these things where I have so many social events that are connected to a piece of music where you sort of, you just, if you just like take two steps back, it feels like you could be at your own funeral in a sense. There's a, tra- there's a tragedy to it, but you could be at your own funeral or like 
major birthday, more generously. But I feel like that that's the thing in my life that I've constructed, not necessarily on purpose, but 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 it's happened by accident, it's happened in collaboration. That's the thing that's for me the most satisfying. And again, like proud is such a hard word. It's not something that it you know, I, I feel sort of I, I I feel hesitant to be like proud of a piece or whatever, or proud of having written something. Like it, it that feels like the wrong that that feels like the wrong thing just for me emotionally. I'm I'm happy with things, but it, it's never about it's never about pride in in and I use that in the in the sort of biblical sense. But yeah, but I think I think having like a big community is really is really important. It's just such a beautiful thing to have so many people from so many different places all under the same roof. And if people aren't there, you toast to them and you FaceTime them and you see them and you send pictures. <laughs> So this interview, the one that we've been DJing for the most part for the whole show, uh, it was actually conducted about a year ago. And in between then and now, something kind of interesting happened to Nico. He began to notice that mentally he, he wasn't where he wanted to be. And so back in May, he wrote a really candid blog entry about mental health called Thoughts on Being Well. It reads, I have been, it turns out, unwell for a long time. I didn't really start realizing how unwell I'd been until I suddenly, over the course of three months, got a little bit better. The long and the short of it is that I'd had an ugly mental health episode about 10 years ago and got immediate treatment, but then as a result of my own laziness, a punishing travel schedule, and being convinced I needed to see a shrink who takes my insurance, what had been an emergency solution to manic depression became a permanent cocktail of medications taken every day for 10 chemically unexamined years. Recently, I thought to myself in a moment of rare clarity about my own life that maybe I wasn't feeling as great as I might. From 2009 to 2014, I wrote two operas, several orchestra pieces, a few film scores, tons of choral music, and a pile of chamber music. I was constantly busy, and all of my projects were great ones to have, and all of my collaborators were stellar, and it was all on paper going fine. Something a friend's mother said to me kept haunting me, though. She'd come to the Met premiere of my opera Two Boys in 2013, and the opening night crowd was enthusiastic and was, as is the custom at such events, clapping enthusiastically as I took a bow. She said to me afterwards, Wow, you must feel ten feet tall. I said thank you and smiled, but I couldn't shake that comment from my head. I thought about it a few months ago and realized that, no, I really didn't. It wasn't the opposite. I didn't feel small, but I felt empty or invisible. This physical manifestation of the work wasn't something I'd made. It was something that was happening around me to which I was a passive and silent witness. Bounce, baby, bounce with it. Oh. Hey. So recently, we Hi. caught up with Nico, this time in a hotel room in Detroit where we both were for a concert. And we asked him about it. Do you want some I'd been seeing a psychiatrist um, who took my insurance, which is like, you know, for anyone who's listening uh, in another country, this sounds insane, but like shrinks either take your insurance or they don't. If they take your insurance, you pay them 50 bucks. And if they don't take your insurance, you pay them $450, like for 50 minutes. I mean, it's insane. So I <clears throat> I got the sense that things were not working um, and came sort of dangerously close to like a previous like manic state and I thought well, let's let me see if $450 can solve this rather than 50 so I, I went to see to see this new psychiatrist and she was basically like let's change everything so I went off one thing went on another thing and and over the course of the sort of six months of the sort of crossfade between the two medications I realized that I've been really really dulled to a lot of things for about 10 years um specifically 
you know, in my personal life, like there was a lot of that. But as I, as it related to me as a musician, I was unable to enjoy any of the sort of outward or or like cosmetic signs of being successful. So what that meant was like I didn't feel good. I didn't feel specifically good if anyone like clapped for something I did. You know, not that you should, but I mean you should, right? It's like it's a pleasure response. <laughs> like you should feel okay when that happens. You should feel okay if you're like taking a bow in front of like a big group of people who've just done something. And right? if you've spent years and years writing an opera and then people give you applause, you should feel pride at that time. You should feel pride, exactly. And I I found myself feeling like no pride, no pride. But but also it was like the sense of like achievement or accomplishment was like as if I had like done a morning's worth of errands okay. You know what I mean? It's like I'd gone to like the dry cleaner and like I, you know, walked the dog. It's like, it was a sense of like, oh, okay, there's that. So so that happened. And then I, I guess the other thing I addressed in that was like how, how it had messed up my ability to feel sad about stuff when stuff was actually sad. Because I was always able to be practical. A friend died and it was like, I was like on it. You know, it's like, okay, let's send the money to here and deal with this and like logistics. You know what I mean? And it wasn't until a year and a half later when I... When I you know, change this medication. I was like, oh God, that was really dark and sad. But I hadn't, you know, been there. Do you think any of this is sort of playing out in your music in any way? Well, a little bit. I mean, I, I, I would say this. My, in, in the last two years, I would say, the music has gotten a lot more complicated and there's a lot more activity. There's a lot more connection with it, with the sort of, not just a kind of energy being like high energy or whatever, but that being in some way kind of destructive and, and angry. Um, which again, it's like you know, I, I don't feel like in my specific process there's there's too much of a one-to-one correlation between like what's going on like psychologically and how it sounds. But it, it has been interesting to watch it. There's there's a much more like panicked energy um, to it now, for better or for worse. Um, but you know, again, that that's the kind of thing that I I try not to think about too much because the, if you think about it, then you find yourself writing about. You know what I mean? It's like it, it's this kind of process of. But we'll see. I mean, it's also. You know, the music that I'm writing today, we're not going to hear it for, like, six months. You know, so it's, it's, there's this delay. Well, I think people probably know this, but... I guess one of the things I like most about Nico is his is that he's like unafraid to say anything. That's Lisa Kaplan. She's the pianist for the new music ensemble Eighth Blackbird. And I think that it's really great that he's so open about everything, you know, music writing, combating mental illness, you know, what medication he's taken, how he treated somebody at a concert. I love that he makes all of that public. Um, I, I just think, I wish there was more of that. There's a certain sort of, like, kinetic element to his music. Like, even, even a lot of his kind of slow music has very fast-moving notes, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think there's a certain kind of buoyancy that's a part of his music, part of his energy as a person. And I feel like, you know, I can really feel that.
So actually, the reason we were all in Detroit recently was for the U.S. premiere of a viola concerto Nico wrote for me last year. The viola concerto is the latest piece we've worked on together, and in a lot of ways, it's been 10 years in the making. The first time Nico and I worked together was way back in 2004, around the time that Nico was working for Philip Glass. I was in my first year of my master's degree at Juilliard, and I was taking a course on 20th century music that was taught by Martin Verdrager. Our midterm assignment was to construct an oral presentation on a 20th century composer. This was like 2004, and I remember asking Dr. Verdrager if I could do a presentation on a 21st century composer, since I'd just met this kid, Nico Muley, and had asked him to write a viola cello duet for my recital at the end of the year. Dr. Verdrager paused and then kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, sure, I'm letting someone do Prokofiev, so why not? I definitely thought that completing the assignment in this manner was cheating. I could literally ask the composer what went into his music. I didn't even need to use the library. So I went to Nico and I asked him for a list of music that he really liked, stuff that he found influential or life-changing or whatever. And this being 2004, Nico burned me a CD. On it were a few things we had already talked about, specifically 17th century English choral music that he and I had both sang as children. But also, there was all of this minimalism. He asked me if I knew the Philip Glass opera Einstein on the Beach, and I remember feeling super embarrassed when I admitted that I, I just didn't know it. At that point in my life, I'm pretty sure I was used to being dismissive of Philip Glass, aping the postures of older musicians, and yet I, I had never really listened to it. So Nico put Spaceship on there, and it just it completely blew my mind. I gave that presentation, and more importantly, by the time I premiered the duo Nico had written, I had such a deeper understanding of what went into this music, what went into this person. The pieces he chose, they sort of set the stage for his language, his sense of counterpoint, his love of pulse and texture and phrase, but these ideas were all filtered through Nico's own restless brain. Nico is a social virtuoso, a keen observer, and when Nico speaks, he takes sentences and idioms and perverts them, subjects them to whims and puns and linguistic games and tropes. And so musically, these influences he showed me, you can hear them. But the mere act of steeping them in Nico's head, not to mention the force of his compositional mind, forges these very particular, beautiful phrases. They are descendant from music I know, familiar-seeming, but still odd, alien. I need to listen to Nico's music a few times to even understand what he's playing with, what dozens of operations are going on. Nico pulls influences into these little ecosystems and then lets his brain ferment them into these crazy, delicious new things. So what I love... The great and intense and also selfishly satisfying thing about playing brand new pieces of music is that the performance practice is directly informed by your own impulses. I've been playing Nico's stuff for 10 years, so there's something of my musical DNA in his music at this point. It's a crazy process, and I'm in love with it. 
When Nico handed me the score for the concerto, I was so happy to find it both very specific and very open. All of the large structures were very precisely notated, but the specific choreography of getting from one note to another he left open to my interpretation. This type of generosity, I think, is why players love performing his music. He allows for the musicians performing his work to show through, to shine, and to be heard. To a certain extent, I think what you need is not for someone to tell you that what you like is good, but for someone to tell you that you know nothing. You know, I feel like, I feel like despite years of, of active study of everything, you know, there's still so much more. And of course there is. It's, it's literally infinite. You know, it's, it's as infinite as a thing could be, I think. And, you know, there, there's a kind of, there's a process of discrimination when you say, you know what, like, I'm, I'm, I'm closing the doors like, I'm not letting anything else in, which I think could, should probably happen, like, three or four weeks before you die. Right? At which point you, like, you know what I mean? Like, you call your lawyer, you, like, clear out the free, the, you know, it's like, you, that's when you, like, or, you know, you throw the yogurt. Like, that's, that's when you can stop kind of learning the things. But until that time, I feel like you have to kind of keep moving. Meet the Composer is a production of Q2 Music, part of New York's classical 105.9 FM WQXR. 
Enjoy new music 24-7 and discover the best by today's composers by listening to our stream at q2music.org. A very special thanks to this episode's patron producer, Justice Schlichting. Hi, this is Jonathan Stone from East Orange, New Jersey. Links to all the music featured on today's show are available at q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. Meet the Composer was produced by Nadia Sirota and Alexander Overington. Additional support was provided by Carol Ann Chung, Hannes Brown, and Justin Long. Our executive producer is Alex Ambrose. Thanks to our expert guests, Shara Warden, Leonard Slatkin, Valger Sigerson, Lisa Kaplan, Reverend James Mustard, James McVinney, and Peter Geld. Additional thanks to New Music USA for their flexibility with the use of the Meet the Composer name, which became famous through their legacy organization founded by composer John Duffy. Many thanks to our Season 2 Kickstarter donors, including Chris Kim, Jenny Peterson, Mark Cohn, Michael Overington, Alex Ambrose, and Graham Parker.